0: Hey guys, how's it going out there? Thanks for tuning in to the YFYI podcast. On today's episode, I'm excited to bring you another live story time episode and we're covering Steve Jobs, we're covering the great company Apple, Apple Computer as it was originally named. And today we're gonna get into that formation, the formation of the company. We're getting into Steve's quest for enlightenment, his journey to India. And then only to return home, uh, to hook back up with his buddy Waz, working on a few projects. And then Waz has a vision, Steve has an ambition, and together they form the company. So we're going to get into that formation stage that led us to, you know, having I, pretty much everything, iPhone, iPad, iWatch, iLife, iWorld, and how it all started on a summer day in 1975 when Waz has that vision. So I'm excited for this episode. Hope you guys are inspired by it. Hope you are enjoying the story time. And now let's get into the podcast. Good morning. Good morning. We're live, live. It's time for story time. How's it going out there? Hope you guys are doing good. Hope you're feeling good. Hope you're ready to continue our journey down the road, down the road of Jobs, down the road of Steve Jobs. We've been going through this uh, book, Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. Amazing, amazing, amazing book on one of my biggest mentors. Um, Steve Jobs actually is on my board of advisors. And when I say that, I mean my virtual board of advisors. I've talked to you guys a little bit about that, why I think it's important for you to have a board. If you don't have one already, uh, maybe consider setting up a board. Um, that board of advisors, they don't have to be people that you have actual access to. They can be, but they don't have to be. Um, but what that board is, its a, for me, it's a virtual board. And it's people like... Steve Jobs. It's people like Richard Branson. It's people like Sam Walton. It's people like Ray Kroc. It's people like John Paul DeJoria. It's people like, who else is over here? Howard Schultz. 50% of those people that I just mentioned are dead. Uh, I'll never meet them but through books like this, through information that we all have access to because of the beautiful world we live in called connected, called the Internet of Everything. Uh, we're able to learn from them still. We're able to interact with them. We're able to um, kind of reach out, in a sense, uh, to them and be able to get insight. You've heard of the WWW, you know, SD, what would Steve do? WWW. Um, SD, what would Sonny do? What would Sam do? What would all of these different people do um, in a time like this? You know, and I think about, you know, COVID-19. I think about all the other crazy shit that's going on in the world. And I think like, what would this person do or that person do in a time like this? And through reading these books and studying and learning about these, um, these individuals, you can, you can get a little insight as to what they do because you could get inside of their, their head. You know, you can learn from them. And that's what I use these books for. And that's why I think that board of advisors. So, and if they're, if they're living and you can actually, you know, reach out to them and you can contact them, then you could approach them and say, hey, you know, would you uh, consider being on my board of trusted advisors? Um, if you have access to them so um, that's just one of the things that i've done over time i've assembled this board and it changes but it's about 10 you know 10 11 12 people usually and if i'm ever you know going through a certain situation you know i can lean in if it's a technological kind of thing i'm trying to figure out i can lean in and i can get into you know conversation virtual conversation with somebody like a steve jobs and what would he do and how how might he have approached this situation um if it's a business decision if it's a technological thing um so all these different people on my board of advisors i lean into and so that's why i'm i mean this you know this is definitely one of the big ones for me because he's been a mentor of mine um, is a mentor of mine i've learned so much Uh, from him, just studying him, watching his company, using his products, learning about him. So it's exciting to be able to kind of go back through and get into some of those stories. And for all those people that are out there, you know, if you're using an iPhone or an iPad or an i-whatever, i-anything, i-everything, then you may, you know, have experienced some of the results, but maybe not experienced The story and maybe not, you know, gotten in touch with, you know, the man. So that's why I'm excited to be sharing these stories with you guys this week. So where we left off yesterday, and if you're just getting here, welcome, welcome, whether you're on Twitter, you're on Instagram, you're on one of the Facebook pages, wherever the stream is coming to you. If you're on the, um, if you're listening to this on the podcast, um, share this stream, share the post, share the story, share it with somebody um, that you think might Uh, might like to learn a little bit more about some of these businesses these mentors or um, any any insights you think they might be interested in so where we left off yesterday you know Steve was getting ready to go to India you know so he was working right he tried a college thing kind of felt guilty dropped out was like I'm wasting all my parents money why I don't know why Um, so then he drops out goes into into the world out there in the world starts working and he's starting to really experience, you know, kind of different things and he you know, he's trying drugs, he's trying, you know, to elevate his mind. He's trying to get in touch with him, you know, get in touch with himself, his inner being. And he's really kind of searching and searching and searching. And he had a couple of those critical um, encounters, people that he met, Robert Friedland, Daniel Kotke, people that he met along the way. And then he ends up You know, meeting Steve Wozniak, which becomes the co-founder of Apple with him. And Steve Wozniak is the kind of the mad scientist, like tinker guy that kind of builds things. And he's and then Steve Jobs, he has kind of that insight is like maybe we could turn this into a business. And he met some people that own businesses and he's like, that'd be cool one day to, you know, to make or form or start you know, a business. So he's experiencing all that, but he's also getting into, you know, um, yoga and being a vegetarian and looking at, at India, like in learning about these different people, the guy that he met at college um, that, you know, is talking about that. And so he's at the point where he's like, you know I want to go to India but he's working at Atari right making you know working on video games making stuff but everybody around the office is like he's a hippie he smells he doesn't take a shower he's you know this that and the other so he's working nights but he's wanting to go to India and that's where we're picking up so one reason Jobs was eager to make some money in early 1974 was that Robert Friedland remember Robert Friedland who he met back in college who had gone to India the summer before was urging him to take his own spiritual journey there. Friedland had studied in India with Neem Karoli Baba, Maharaj Ji, who had been the guru to much of the 60s hippie movement. Jobs decided he should do the same and he recruited Daniel Kotke to go with him. Jobs was not motivated by mere adventure. For me, it was a serious search, he said. I'd been turned on to the idea of enlightenment and trying to figure out who I was and how I fit into things. Cocky adds that Job's quest seemed driven partly by not knowing his birth parents. There was a hole in him and he was trying to fill it. So, you know, he never knew his birth parents, but he's, he knows he's adopted. Um, and it seemed like he kind of got over, you know, being adopted and thinking he was abandoned and being thought of as being special and being thought of as being chosen because that's what his parents really kind of were instilling into him but now he's he's still on this search like who am I how do I fit into the world and so he wants to go to India for this like kinda spiritual journey and it's part of the enlightenment process so he's gonna go to his people at Atari right he's gotta tell them hey what's going on guys I'm getting ready to um, take off I'm going to India so in jobs told the folks at Atari that he was quitting to go search for a guru in India, the jovial Alcorn was amused. He comes in and stares at me and declares, I'm going to find my guru. And I say, no shit, that's super, write me. And he says he wants me to help pay. And I tell him bullshit. Then Alcorn had an idea. Atari was making kits and shipping them to Munich where they were built into finished machines and distributed by a wholesaler in Turin. but there was a problem. Because the games were designed for the American rate of 60 frames per second, there were frustrating interference problems in Europe, where the rate was 50 frames per second. Alcorn sketched out a fix with Jobs and then offered to pay for him to go to Europe to implement it. It's going to be cheaper to get to India from there, he said. Jobs agreed, so Alcorn sent him on his way with the exhortation, say hi to your guru for me. So Jobs spent a few days in Munich where he solved the interference problem, but in the process, he flummoxed the dark-suited German managers. They complained to Alcorn that he dressed and smelled like a bum and behaved rudely. I said, did he solve the problem? And they said, yeah. I said, if you got any more problems, you just call me. I got more guys just like him." They said, no, we'll take care of it next time. For his part, Jobs was upset that the Germans kept trying to feed him meat and potatoes. They don't even have a word for vegetarian, he complained incorrectly in a phone called Alcorn. He had a better time when he took the train to see the distributor in Turin, where the Italian pastas and his host camaraderie were more simpatico. I had a wonderful couple of weeks in Turin, which is this charged up industrial town, he recalled. The distributor took me out every night to dinner at his place where there were only eight tables and no menu. You just tell them what you wanted and they made it. One of the tables was on reserve for the chairman of Fiat. It was really super. He went when he next went to Lugano, Switzerland where he stayed with Friedland's uncle and from there took a flight to India. So he's on his way, right? He gets the trip paid for which is kinda cool. Not totally paid for it but he gets it paid for to get over to um, to get to Europe at least so then he's able to fly from there and go to India and you know this trip in India it's it's about you know him really kind of being enlightened and that's what he's hoping to do to find to find this guru and to you know spend time there and and figure out like who am I how do I fit into the world Um, what's my purpose right and we're all always I think looking for that you know, we're looking for our purpose and we see things. We see people right now, you know, this is a little off script, but we see people, um, this is not in the book, by the way, if you don't see and you're, you don't see, I stopped reading. Um, but we see people right now that um, everyone's trying to find a purpose, you know, with with all the, the world right now kind of being on tilt and you know where do people fit in the world and you're, you're watching you see protests going on and people are out there and they're, you know some people don't even know why they're out there they're just there because they're, they're trying to find their purpose they're trying to find where they fit and that may be a thing you'll never totally find you may be searching for that forever but a big thing that he's believing is you know maybe in India he can find this guru and he can find um, his purpose so he's in India he gets a little sick he has some dysentery you know, which is a pretty, uh, pretty nasty stomach bug when you're eating food that you don't normally eat. Um, so he recovers from that, and he's getting, ready to, um, he's getting ready to head out. And so he's in the foothills of the Himalayas, and he gets this book. There's a copy of the autobi- autobiography of a yogi in English that a previous traveler had left. Uh, and I read it several times because there was not a lot to do. And I walked around from village to village and recovered from dysentery. Among those who were part of the community there was Larry Brilliant, an epidemiologist who was working to eradicate smallpox and who later ran Google's philanthropic arm and the Skull Foundation. He became Jobs' lifelong friend. At one point, Jobs was told of a young Hindu holy man who was holding a gathering of his followers at the Himalayan estate of a wealthy businessman. It was a chance to meet a spiritual being and hang out with his followers, but it was also a chance to have a good meal. I could smell the food as we got near, and I was very hungry. As Jobs was eating, the holy man, who was not much older than Jobs, picked him out of the crowd, pointed at him, and began laughing maniacally. He came running over and grabbed me and made a tooting sound and said, "'You are just like a baby,' recalled Jobs. I was not relishing this attention, taking jobs by the hand, he led him out of the worshipful crowd and walked him up to a hill where there was a well and a small pond. We sit down and he pulls out this straight razor. I'm thinking he's a nutcase and begin to worry. Then he pulls out a bar of soap. I had long hair at the time and he lathered up my hair and shaved my head. He told me that he was saving my health. Daniel Kotki arrived in India at the beginning of the summer and Jobs went back to New Delhi to meet him. They wandered mainly by bus rather aimlessly. By this point, Jobs was no longer trying to find a guru who could impart wisdom, but instead was seeking enlightenment through ascetic experience, deprivation, and simplicity. He was not able to achieve intercom. Kotki remembers him getting into a furious shouting match with a Hindu woman in a village marketplace who, Jobs alleged, had been watering down the milk she was selling them yet jobs could also be generous when they got to the town of Manali khaki's sleeping bag was stolen and his travelers with his travelers checks in it steve covered my food expenses and bus ticket back to Delhi khaki recalled he also gave khaki the rest of his own money $100 to tide him over during his seven months in India He had written to his parents only sporadically, getting mail at the American Express office in New Delhi when he passed through. And so they were somewhat surprised when they got a call from the Oakland airport asking them to pick him up. They immediately drove up from Los Altos. My head had been shaved, I was wearing Indian cotton robes, and my skin had turned a deep chocolate brown red from the sun, he recalled. So I'm sitting there and my parents walked past me about five times and finally my mother came up and said, Steve? And I said, hi. They took him back home where he continued trying to find himself. It was a pursuit with many paths toward enlightenment. In the mornings and evenings he would meditate and study Zen and in between he would drop in to audit physics and engineering courses at Stanford. So he goes on this journey, right? He's in India, you know, gets his head shaved, comes back, not necessarily maybe have achieved his mission, um, but still eager to learn, right? And I think that's what I think, you know, and this is my opinion that it was more about just a search for information, just learning, just experiencing, just seeing like what else is out there, uh, which is something I, I mean, I believe people, you know, should do. You should try. You should go. You should, um, you should wander wander like wander your physical body around and you should also i think wonder you know wondering and wandering are are ways that you discover uh wonder what this is going to do wonder what that's going to do wander over there wander over there so wonder and wander Um and i think that's where you know steve is is at in his life at this point and you know he's still practicing zen the buddhism um spirituality and his interests you know it's You know at the at the time I mean he's a teenager you know young guy coming up um, but that continued throughout you know his life really so now he's back in California and he's to do what what is he gonna do so he decides to go back over to um, Atari and this is when he gets back, he goes back to his old you know, job and he sees everybody. So one day, early in 1975, Al Alcorn was sitting in his office at Atari when Ron Wayne burst in. Hey, Steve is back, he shouted. Wow, bring him in. Bring him on in. Alcorn replied, Jobs shuffled in barefoot, wearing a saffron robe and carrying a copy of Be Here Now, which he handed to Alcorn and insisted he read. Can I have my job back, he asked. He looked like a Harry Krishna guy, but it was great to see him, Alcorn recalled. So I said, sure. Once again, for the sake of harmony, Jobs worked mostly at night. Wozniak, who was living in an apartment nearby and working at HP, would come by after dinner to hang out and play the video games. He had become addicted to Pong at a Sunnyvale bowling alley, and he was able to build a version that he hooked up to his home TV set. One day in the late summer of 1975, Nolan Bushnell, defying the prevailing wisdom that paddle games were over, decided to develop a single-player version of Pong. Instead of competing against an opponent, the player would volley the ball into a wall that lost a brick whenever it was hit. He called Jobs into his office, sketched it out on a little blackboard, and asked him to design it. There would be a bonus, Bushnell told him, for every chip fewer than 50 that he used. Bushnell knew that Jobs was not a great engineer, but he assumed, correctly, that he would recruit Wozniak, who was always hanging around. I looked at it as a two-for-one thing, Bushnell recalled. Woz was a better engineer. Wozniak was thrilled when Jobs asked him to help and proposed splitting the fee. This was the most wonderful offer in my life, to actually design a game that people would use, he recalled. Jobs said it had to be done in four days and with the fewest chips possible. What he hid from Wozniak was that the deadline was one that Jobs had imposed because he needed to get to the all one farm to help prepare for the apple harvest. He also didn't mention that there was a bonus tied to keeping down the number of chips. So this is where things get interesting because the the relationship with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, you know, as partners that founded Apple, When this happened, and there's a lot of you know different reports on this. If you really want to dive into it, you can you know you can learn more about it. But he's got this deadline, he says, um, to get this done in four days because he has other you know motives, like he wants to go to this farm where he's like you know hanging out, he can help with the apple harvest, and he's like living on this compound. Uh, but he's got Steve Wozniak, who's this great designer. Um, but not maybe as savvy in the business side of things. And he kind of basically like tells them, yeah, like we gotta finish it by this time. Wozniak loves the game and he just wants to build. He doesn't really care. Um, he says they're gonna split the money. He's like, that's cool. He says nothing about the bonus that's tied to it. Not so cool. And so Wozniak not only helps him build it, gets it done gets it done ahead of schedule gets it done um with a fewer chips because those chips cost money so they're saving money but then you know helps him get the bonus and steve never tells him anything about it doesn't give it to him um so it's like a lie and and it definitely hurt wozniak later on when he like learns about it you know he's kind of like Kind of shocked, like why did you have to lie like hes he said you know he would have given him the money if he needed the money, he's like he didn't really care about the money. he just wanted to build stuff um and there's something in here when Wozniak later said, when he talks about it now, there are long pauses, and he admits that it causes him pain. I wish he had just been honest if he had told me he needed the money, he should have known I would have just given it to him. He was a friend. you help your friends. To Wozniak, it showed a fundamental difference in their characters. Ethics always mattered to me, and I still don't understand why he would have why he would have gotten paid one thing and told me he'd gotten paid another. He said, but you know people are different When Jobs learned this story was published, he called Wozniak to deny it. He told me that he didn't remember doing it, and that if he did something like that, he would remember it so he probably didn't do it, Wozniak recalled. When I asked Jobs directly, he became unusually quiet and hesitant. I don't know where that allegation comes from, he said. I gave him half the money I ever got. That's how I've always been with Woz. I mean, Woz stopped working in 1978. He never did one ounce of work after 1978, and he got exactly the same shares of Apple stock that I did. Is it possible that memories are muddled and that Jobs did not, in fact, shortchange Wozniak? There's a chance that my memory is all wrong and messed up, Wozniak told me. But after a pause, he reconsidered. But no, I remember the details of this one. The $350 check. He confirmed his memory with Nolan Bushnell and Al Alcorn. I remember talking about the bonus money to Woz and he was upset, Bushnell said. I said, yes, there was a bonus for each chip they saved, and he just shook his head and then clucked his tongue. Whatever the truth, Wozniak later insisted that it was not worth rehashing. Jobs is a complex person, he said, and being manipulative is just the darker facet of the traits that make him successful. Wozniak would never have been that way, But as he points out, he also could never have built Apple. I would rather let it pass, he said, when I pressed the point. It's not something I want to judge Steve by. The Atari experience helped Shape Jobs' approach to business and design. He appreciated the user-friendliness of Atari's Insert Quarter, Avoid Klingons games. That simplicity rubbed off on him and made him a very focused product person, said Ron Wayne. Jobs also absorbed some of Bushnell's take-no-prisoners attitude. Nolan wouldn't take no for an answer, according to Alcorn, and this was Steve's first impression of how things got done. Nolan was never abusive, like Steve sometimes is, but he had the same driven attitude. It made me cringe, but damn it, it got things done. In that way, Nolan was a mentor for Jobs. Bushnell agreed. There is something indefinable in an entrepreneur, and I saw that in Steve, he said. He was interested not just in engineering, but also the business aspects. I taught him that if you act like you can do something, then it will work. I told him, pretend to be completely in control, and people will assume that you are. So now he's got this mentor. So that experience when he was working at Atari, learning about business, um, learning, you know, about engineering and also really learning about product. And that's one of the things that Steve Jobs has been touted for, Apple has been touted for, is the product, you know, being in into the design of the product. And I talked a little bit about this a couple episodes ago, or maybe it was yesterday, um, that it's not just having a beautiful, you know, phone. That's not really the only thing that they're trying to do and that they wanted. They wanted also to have that beautiful phone, but to also have a beautiful experience with that beautiful phone. And that's product design. So thinking about like having, I mean, a TV, right? So if Apple did a TV, it's like, everyone's like, oh, they they have, you know, are they going to build a TV? They could, but I don't really think they're building a, a TV just to build a TV. What's what's going to be different? And so when they went into wearables, that was a big talk. You know, putting you know, coming out with the Apple Watch is like, what can we do different? Um, how are we going to be able to make something different? And that's been always their approach. And a lot of that came and was ingrained from Steve Jobs, from his approach to. Um, everything that he did to being able to design something that's not only beautiful when you hold it um, but the functionality the experience i mean all the way down to when you open a product and any of you guys out there that have ever opened a brand new iphone or a brand new macbook or an ipad or whatever even the unboxing experience they think a lot about that it's not like it's just like you know here it is they like go into uh great detail and that a lot of that came from those early days and a lot of that came from early Steve. Um so that was his early experience and now we're getting into Apple. So there's a couple different products. You know, I want to talk about definitely the first product, right, the Apple 1. Um that was, you know, in uh <coughs> in the very beginning. And I've got if you're watching this on Facebook, um I've got this pretty cool uh, image going on behind me today which is uh, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak in the garage, in his parents' garage where they really started Apple Computer. They started it in the garage, just tinkering around, just trying to build something. But personal computing started way back then. Personal computing was in the beginning, I mean, it, it was like a, a far-fetched idea. It was a very niche thing. Not too many people had access. If you had access, it was like, you, you know, you had some inside. You knew somebody who knew somebody. It wasn't like, you know, it is today where everybody's walking around with the supercomputer in their pocket, thanks to Steve Jobs and this early work. Um, but back in, you know, the day, that's not how it went. Um, so we're going to get into the first Apple, you know, in the beginning phases. Um, Starting with the Apple One. So, machines of loving grace. In San Francisco and the Santa Clara Valley during the late 60s, various cultural currents flowed together. There was the technology revolution that began with the growth of military contractors and soon included electronics firms, microchip makers, video game designers, and computer companies. There was a hacker subculture filled with wireheads, freakers, cyberpunks, hobbyists, and just plain geeks that included engineers who didn't conform to the HP mold and their kids who weren't attuned to the wavelengths of the subdivisions. There were quasi-academic groups doing studies on the effects of LSD. Participants included Doug Engelbart, of the Augmentation Research Center in Palo Alto who later helped develop the computer mouse and graphical user interfaces, and Ken Kesey who celebrated the drug and music and light shows featuring a house band that became the Grateful Dead. There was the hippie movement born out of the Bay Area's beat generation and the rebellious political activists born out of the free speech movement at Berkeley. Overlaid on it all were various self-fulfillment movements pursuing paths to personal enlightenment, Zen and Hinduism, meditation and yoga, primal scream and sensory deprivation, esalon and EST. This fusion of flower power and processor power, enlightenment and technology was embodied by Steve Jobs as he meditated in the mornings audited physics classics, classes at Stanford, worked nights at Atari, and dreamed of starting his own business. There was just something going on here, he said, looking back at the time and place. The best music came from here, The Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Joan Baez, Janis Joplin, and so did the integrated circuit and things like the Whole Earth Catalog. Initially, the technologists and the hippies did not interface well. Many in the counterculture saw computers as ominous and Orwellian, the province of the Pentagon and the power structure. In The Myth of the Machine, the historian Lewis Mumford warned that computers were sucking away our freedom and destroying life-enhancing values. An injunction on punch cards of the period, do not fold, spindle, or mutilate, became an ironic phrase of the anti-war left. But... By the early 1970s, a shift was underway. Computing went from being dismissed as a tool of bureaucratic control to being embraced as a symbol of individual expression and liberation. John Markoff wrote in his study of the counterculture's convergence with the computer industry, What the Dorm house Said. It was an ethos lyrically expressed in Richard Brodigan's 1967 poem, all watched over by machines of loving grace and the cyberdelic fusion was certified with timothy leary when timothy leary declared that personal computers had become the new lsd and years later revised his famous mantra to proclaim turn on boot up jack in the musician bono who later became a friend of jobs Often discussed with him why those immersed in the rock, drugs, rebel counterculture of the Bay Area ended up helping to create the personal computer industry. The people who invented the 21st century were pot-smoking, sandal-wearing hippies from the West Coast, like Steve, because they saw differently. He said, "The hierarchical, hierarchical, hierarchical it's a word I have always a tough time saying. The hierarchical systems of the East Coast." England Germany and Japan do not encourage this different thinking the 60s produced an anarchic mindset that is great for imagining a world not yet in existence so you've got this all this stuff clashing right and steve always kind of you know it was interesting because he always like kind of found his way like being right in the middle so you've got like the you know we don't want machines computers are going to you know destroy us side of things and then you've got people that are like these computers can like take us to another level computers it it could be cool like technology could be cool and then in the middle standing in the middle like he's found himself in a lot of um, intersections is Steve Jobs so he's on both sides where he feels like you know there is a in art form, and I think that kind of goes back to him just being that artist, you know loving art and thinking that you could have emergence of these two worlds, and these computers and artists can kind of merge together and when you look at something like an apple, you know a lot of artists still to this day when it comes to technology, they flock to Apple. You know, designers, animators, video gamers, um, they're just, their products have always been kind of in an artsy realm, you know, and and they've kind of maintained that over 40 years uh, plus. So, now we're gonna get into the Homebrew Computer Club, and this is, um, I guess you could say this is where, you know, all the the geeks kind of are hanging out. And, There's another interesting character we're going to meet here in just a second. All right. So there's this catalog, The Whole Earth Fan, um, The Whole Earth Catalog, which kind of covers, you know, different things on computing and um, different things on technology. So, you know, Steve's a big fan of it. And Brand's catalog was published with the help of the Portola Institute, a foundation dedicated to the fledgling field of computer education. The foundation also helped launch the People's Computer Company, which was not a company at all, but a newsletter, an organization with the motto, Computer Power to the People. There were occasional Wednesday night potluck dinners, and two of the regulars, Gordon French and Fred Moore, decided to create a more formal club where news about personal electronics could be shared. They were energized by the arrival of the January 1975 issue of Popular Mechanics which had on its cover the first personal computer kit, the Altair. The Altair wasn't much, just a 495 pile of parts that had to be soldered, soldered that had to be soldered to a board that would then do little. But for hobbyists and hackers, it heralded the dawn of a new era. Bill Gates and Paul Allen read the magazine and started working on a version of BASIC, an easy-to-use programming language for the Altair. It also caught the attention of Jobs and Wozniak. And when an Altair kit arrived at the People's Computer Company, it became the centerpiece for the first meeting of the club that French and Moore had decided to launch. The Homebrew Computer Club. The group became known as the Homebrew Computer Club and it encapsulated the whole earth fusion between the counterculture and technology. It would become to the personal computer era something akin to what the Turks' head coffee house was to the age of Dr. Johnson, a place where ideas were exchanged and disseminated. Moore wrote the flyer for the first meeting held on March 5th, 1975 in French's Menlo Park garage. Are you building your own computer? Terminal, TV, typewriter, it asked. If so, you might like to come to a gathering of people with like-minded interests. Alan Baum spotted the flyer on the HP bulletin board and called Wozniak, who agreed to go with him. That night turned out to be one of the most important nights of my life, Wozniak recalled. About 30 other people showed up, spilling out of French's open garage door, and they took turns describing their interest. Wozniak, who later admitted to being extremely nervous, said he liked video games, pay movies for hotels, scientific calculator design, and TV terminal design, according to the minus prepared by Moore, according to the minutes prepared by Moore. There was a demonstration of the new Altair, but more important to Wozniak was seeing the specification sheet for a microprocessor. As he thought about the microprocessor, a chip that had an entire central processing unit on it, he had an insight. He had been designing a terminal with a keyboard and monitor that could connect to a distant mini-computer. Using a microprocessor, he could put some of the capacity of the mini-computer inside the terminal itself so it would become a small standalone computer on a desktop. It was an enduring idea, keyboard, screen, and computer, all in one integrated personal package. This whole vision of a personal computer just popped into my head, he said. That night, I started to sketch out on paper what would later become known as the Apple One. So, there it is. Steve Wozniak has the vision. He sees the first personal computer by going to this meeting. Boom, he sees it because right at that point it was a hobbyist thing. It was a kit. You get all these parts, you put it together, it's fun, but it doesn't really do anything. But he's already working on these different components. But when he sees this microprocessor, he has the idea, boom, this could be, you know, this could be something, a personal computer, which would have everything kind of working together and he has that vision that night at the uh, in the garage at the club at first he planned to use the same microprocessor that was in the Altair an Intel 8080 but each of those cost almost more than my monthly rent so he looked for an alternative he found one in the Motorola 6800 which a friend at HP was able to get for forty dollars apiece then he discovered a chip by MOS technologies that was electronically the same but cost only $20. It would make his machine affordable but it would carry a long-term cost. Intel's chips ended up becoming the industry standard which would haunt Apple when its computers were incompatible with it. After work each day Wozniak would go home for a TV dinner and then return to HP to moonlight on his computer. He spread out the parts in his cubicle, figured out their placement, and soldered them to onto the motherboard. Then he began writing the software that would get the microprocessor to display images on the screen. Because he could not afford to pay for computer time, he wrote the code by hand. After a couple of months, he was ready to test it. I typed a few keys on the keyboard, and I was shocked the letters were displayed on the screen. It was Sunday, June ninth, 1975, a milestone for the personal computer. It was the first time in history, Wozniak later said, anyone had typed a character on a keyboard and seen it show up on their own computer screen right in front of them. Now, when you hear that, I mean, you gotta think about this. Like, where we're at today, I mean, Case in point, I'm not only able to type on a screen, I'm able to broadcast and live stream on multiple screens at the same time to an audience all around the world. And to think back to that day, June 29th, which is only like 10 days away, we're about to celebrate a little anniversary when this happened. And it was the first time in history you know, to be able to just type on a keyboard and have the letters appear on a screen. I mean that's where things were. And these guys, you know, are the ones that are doing this. And that's the you know, that's the thing that um really starts everything. Continuing on here, Jobs was impressed. He peppered Wozniak with questions. Could the computer ever be networked? Was it possible to add a disk for memory storage? He also began to help Waz get components. Particularly important were the dynamic random access memory chips. Jobs made a few calls and was able to score some from Intel for free. Steve is just that sort of person, said Wozniak. I mean, he knew how to talk to a sales representative. I could never have done that. I'm too shy. Jobs began to accompany Wozniak to homebrew meetings, carrying the TV monitor and helping to set things up. The meetings now attracted more than 100 enthusiasts and had been moved to the auditorium of the stanford linear accelerator center presiding with a pointer and a free-form manner was lee felsenstein another embodiment of the merger between the world of computing and the counterculture he was an engineering school dropout a participant in the free speech movement and an anti-war activist he had written for the alternative newspaper, Berkeley Barb, and then gone back to being a computer engineer. Waz was usually too shy to talk in the meetings, but people would gather around his machine afterward and he would proudly show off his progress. Moore had tried to instill in the homebrew an ethos of swapping and sharing rather than commerce. The theme of the club, Waz said, was give to help others. It was an expression of the hacker ethic that information should be free and all authority mistrusted. I designed the Apple I because I wanted to give it away for free to other people, said Wozniak. This was not an outlook that Bill Gates embraced. After he and Paul Allen had produced their basic interpreter for the Altair, Gates was appalled that members of the homebrew were making copies of it and sharing it without paying him. So he wrote, What would become a famous letter to the club. As the majority of hobbyists must be aware, most of you steal your software. Is this fair? One thing you do is prevent good software from being written. Who can afford to do professional work for nothing? I would appreciate letters from anyone who wants to pay up. (laughs) Steve Jobs, similarly, did not embrace the notion that Wozniak's creations, be it a blue box or a computer, wanted to be free. So he convinced Wozniak to stop giving away copies of his schematics. Most people didn't have time to build it themselves anyway, Jobs argued. Why don't we build and sell printed circuit boards to them? It was an example of their symbiosis. Every time I designed something great, Steve would find a way to make money for us, said Wozniak. Wozniak admitted that he would have never thought of doing this on his own. It never crossed my mind to sell computers. It was Steve who said, let's hold them in the air and sell a few. Jobs worked out a plan to pay a guy he knew at Atari to draw the circuit boards and then print up 50 or so. That would cost about $1,000 plus the fee to the designer. They could sell them for forty dollars a piece and perhaps clear a profit of seven hundred dollars. Wozniak was dubious that they could sell them all. I didn't see how we would make our money back. He recalled. He was already in trouble with his landlord for bouncing checks, and now had to pay each month in cash. Jobs knew how to appeal to Wozniak. He didn't argue that they were sure to make the money. To make money but instead that they would have fun, have a fun adventure. Even if we lose our money, we'll have a company, said Jobs, as they were driving in his Volkswagen bus. For once in our lives, we'll have a company. This was enticing the Wozniak even more than any prospect of getting rich, he recalled. I was excited to think about us like that. To be two best friends starting a company? Wow, I knew right then that I'd do it. How could I not? In order to raise the money that he needed, Wozniak sold his HP 65 calculator for $500, though the buyer ended up stiffing him for half of that. For his part, Jobs sold his Volkswagen bus for $1,500. But the person who bought it came to find him two weeks later and said the engine had broken down, and Jobs ac- agreed to pay for half of the repairs. Despite these little setbacks, they now had, with their own small savings thrown in, about $1,300 in working capital, the design for a product, and a plan. They would start their own computer company. Apple is born. And that's where we're gonna finish. So Apple is born, so 1300 bucks. what would you do? What are you willing to do? to go after your dream? What are you willing to do to start your journey? What are you willing to do to start your company? You know, this guy's basically about to get kicked out of his apartment. He has to pay in cash because he wrote bad checks to pay for his rent. He sells his calculator, you know, and, and gets half of what he thought he sold it for. Then Steve Jobs, on the other hand, sells his car, his Volkswagen bus, engine breaks down, he's got to pay for half of the repairs, whatever, you know, hiccups, bumps in the road, ups, downs, all those things happen. And then what happens? They got $1,300. So Apple, the company that we see today, $260 billion in revenue last year, the company that we talked about with those, you know, over 500 stores, you know, 50,000, 40,000 plus employees started with these two guys and their $1300 that they scrounged up. There's so many amazing companies out there when we get into these stories that go back and see how they started. I think about the company that I get to work with, Paul Mitchell, you know, it started with 700 bucks, you know, 40 years ago with John Paul DeJoria and Paul Mitchell. I think about my own company, you know, the Salon 1.0 you know, basically started with nothing. You know, I pawned a necklace to get some money and begged and borrowed from friends to come up with a little money. I think I got like six hundred bucks for that necklace to start the company. You know, it's starting with nothing, but that's what it's gonna take. And that's where when if you're thinking about, you know, if you're not inspired by that, hearing that story where they're just like, you know what, we're gonna do this. Um, but if you're not willing to take those chances, and and then Steve Wozniak's attitude about it was like, hey, you know what, we're gonna have, and then Steve Jobs, he's like told me, hey, we're gonna have an adventure. Who knows if we'll ever make any money? Who knows if this is gonna work or not? It's never been done before. You know, but we're gonna we're gonna give it a shot. And at worst, we'll have some fun and learn some things along the way. But this is our opportunity to start a company. And that was something that Steve was thinking about, you know, for a while, right? when he was inspired by his old uh, bosses. And now he has this opportunity and he's gonna go for it. <clears throat> so it's pretty inspiring and so that's kind of the beginning and that's where they started. You know, with them, you know, like, hey, let's start making these personal computers and let's start, you know, we have this this club of people, everybody's, you know, into this, we can start making some money, maybe a little, maybe, you know, it'll work, um, but that was the beginning. That was the beginning, and thirteen hundred bucks. Apple is born. Um, the name, you know, and one one thing I want to I want to share with you guys: the name. How did they get the name Apple? We'll finish with this little little bonus tidbit, right? So it goes on to say: now that they had decided to start a business, they needed a name. Jobs had gone for another visit to the All One Farm, where he had been pruning the Gravenstein apple trees, and Wozniak picked him up at the airport. On the ride down to Los Altos, they bandied around options. They considered some typical tech words, such as matrix, and some neologisms. Neologisms. I gotta look that word up. Neologisms, such as executech, Gross! Could you imagine, we're sitting here, oh, what kind of phone is that, an Executec. Oh my God. So, but these are the names they're considering, such as Executec, and some straightforward, boring names like Personal Computers, Inc. The deadline for deciding was the next day, when Jobs wanted to start filing the papers. Finally, Jobs proposed Apple Computer. I was on one of my fruitarian diets, he explained. I had just come back from the apple farm. It sounded fun, spirited, and not intimidating. Apple took the edge off the word computer. Plus, it would get us ahead of Atari in the phone book. He told Wozniak that if a better name did not hit them by the next afternoon, they would just stick with Apple, and they did. Apple, it was a smart choice. The word instantly signaled friendliness and simplicity. It managed to be both slightly offbeat and as normal as a slice of pie. There was a whiff of counterculture, back-to-nature earthiness to it. Yet nothing could be more American. And the two words together, Apple Computer, provided an amusing disjuncture. It doesn't quite make sense, said Mike Markula, who soon thereafter became the first chairman of the new company. So it forces your brain to dwell on it. Apple and computers. That doesn't go together. So it helped us grow brand awareness. So there you go. That's how we got Apple, right? Steve's on a fruitarian diet. He's up at that compound, that farm. He's working on the farm. He's like, yeah, Apple. But that thing about the phone book, which is interesting is because, yeah, if you think about it, the phone book's in alphabetical order. And so, boom, their company's gonna pop up in the A, right at the front. It's gonna be one of the first things people see. Um, but then that Apple and that computer, you know, kind of making it, uh, you know, taking that edge off, as he said, making it friendly, making it, you know, kind of simple. And that's how the name Apple uh, became the name of their company. And they've dropped the computer part, but it started as Apple Computer. Um, so that's what we're going to finish today, that little extra bonus. I thought that was interesting. I wanted to definitely had that little highlight I wanted to share with you guys. And we're going to pick back up tomorrow. Um we're gonna get into you know some of the other products i mean and and as they kind of built this company and continue to create i mean in the garage, they're still in the garage some of the other stories I definitely wanna share from there uh but going from the garage to going into becoming a real company um they had the Apple one the Apple two going into um we're gonna get all the way through um, all of the other products as well and some of the cool stories that I picked out of here behind some of those. I mean, but that's the formation and that's how it started. You know, so think about that. 1975, June 29th, you know, is, is the critical day when, you know, Wozniak is the one who has that vision and now with that combination and it didn't work, it wouldn't have worked if it was jobs by himself. You know, it wouldn't have worked if it was Wozniak by himself, but that secret sauce of them kind of coming together to really like, hey, I can build this and I can I can position this. I have the marketing savvy and the way that he looked at design to be able to sell this, to be able to take that idea that Wozniak had of just making a personal computer and then Jobs is able to take that and turn it into a company. Um, so that's where the journey begins. That's where we leave off today on story time. Um, so hopefully you guys are enjoying this. Walter Isaacson's book, Steve Jobs. Uh, incredible, incredible book. If you haven't uh, read it, if you haven't got it, I mean you can get the hard copy. Like for me, most of the time I'll get like the hard copy and I'll get the audio version. So if I'm in my, in my car, I can listen to it. And then when I am you know have some downtime, I can read it you know and I can uh, have experience both ways and hit both sides of the brain Uh, but you can get it in all different formats Um, I highly recommend it this is not a paid endorsement I don't know Walter Isaacson although one day it'd be nice to to meet him Um, I just really admire this work Uh, obviously admire Apple and Steve Jobs being a mentor of mine Uh, definitely uh, recommend this really really great so that's where we're gonna finish today guys Thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back tomorrow morning for another episode of Storytime. If you could, if you would, share the post, share the stream, share the tweet, share the podcast with anybody. I might appreciate it and I will see you guys tomorrow morning. Enjoy the rest of your day and thanks again for tuning in. Hey guys, Sonny here again. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and that little tidbit at the end which I thought was pretty fascinating. You know, when we think about some of these companies like how some are obvious. You can see some of these companies and you see a name. You're like, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. But there's a lot of companies out there that it's not so obvious. Um, if you want to shoot me a comment, shoot me a message, shoot me um, just a, um, a cool, fun fact that I could share of any company that you admire, that you use, that you're a fan of, and how they got their name. I'd be interested to hear some of those companies from you guys, the listeners. So hit me up either on Instagram. You can send me a message at SunnyD1.0 on Twitter at SunnyDTS or on Facebook. You can find me at SunnyD. Of any company and and what the history and the origin story is behind their name i mean i'm thinking about some of those out there like how did the name google come you know how did they come up with the name google uh, starbucks we learned about the ritz-carlton we learned about um, there's a lot of different companies out there and the name is always a tricky part because that's the beginning of your company and so i thought that was a fun little fun fact for you guys so hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode we'll uh, have you back for the next episode If you want to join live story time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, you can catch it on Facebook. You can catch it on Instagram. Uh, Of course, you can check out the podcast, YFYIPodcast.com. And all of the future past and current episodes are going to be available there. And I did talk about the comments, but also reviews. Five-star rating, write a review, send me a screenshot, and I've got a limited edition Yfyi t-shirt with your name on it sent to you at no cost just for doing that because you'll help the podcast get discovered. So head over to yfypodcast.com, check out the episodes, can leave a review, whether you're listening on Spotify, Apple, wherever you're listening to the podcast. So thanks again, guys, for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the podcast. And remember, this is the place where you come to learn how to build your business right once or else you will be doomed to have to build it again. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.